So Our Lady of Guadalupe first appeared, there were several appearances, in, on December 9th, 1531, in Mexico, what's now Mexico City. That used to be the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, December 9th. And for some reason, the Latin Rite Church changed it, I don't know why, to December 8th, but the East still celebrates December 9th. So, now think about this too. 12-12-1531. The book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 12, says what? A great sign appeared in the sky. A woman clothed with the sun, with a crown of 12 stars around her head. Mm, right? Now, I just think it's probably heaven's sense of humor because the Bible didn't come to us with numbers, right? It was in the, the 13th century that Abbot, uh, 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 Archbishop Langford of England put in the chapters, chapter numbers. And then in the 16th century, a Protestant, um, I can't say his name, it's like Etienne something, um, he put in the verse numbers. Both of these men were connected with the University of Paris. Um, but So isn't that interesting that 1212 is, is Our Lady? All right. And there were no uh, boundaries. Uh, the, the, there was no NAFTA back then, right? So... <laughs> <laughs> so we had, uh, you know, all these cu countries weren't formed in Central America, South America. Some were, but some weren't. Um, Mexico, United States, uh, you know, Canada, kind of a more all one thing. <clears throat> the Shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe is the most visited Marian shrine in the world. And Mexico City is, back in its day, was the largest city in the world. And I just think it's so interesting that um, in the States, we have this thing called the Mexico City Policy, which is whether or not the USA will fund abortion internationally. So depending on who's the president of the USA, we either renew the policy or cancel the policy. Isn't that interesting? Mm. And we, we know how Our Lady is connected to the pro-life movement, right? Our Lady of Guadalupe specifically is connected to the pro-life movement, and we're going to talk about that. Now, if you're a movie lover and you'd rather watch a movie than read a book, here's what I'm going to recommend. There's three movies to learn about Our Lady of Guadalupe. Start with the movie Apocalypto by Mel Gibson. Anyone seen it? Anyone heard of it? Good movie, right? So this is pre-Our Lady of Guadalupe, what it was like living in those times. So... It was the Aztecs, the Mayans, and then there were all the different um, indigenous tribes that were not Aztec or Mayan. And um, he, if you follow this one man um, through, through this uh, a native indigenous guy through the film, he winds up being marked for human sacrifice because they, the Aztecs practiced human sacrifice. It's, it's just fascinating. What, to, you feel what it's like to be sitting there waiting to be sacrificed, you know? I'm not going to say more than that, but he has to um, um, save his family, basically. It's a quest for this one man to save his family. Mel said he saw a, a, a man running through a jungle. That's how his movie started. He just saw in his mind's eye a man running, 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 running through a jungle. 
Then you would watch the feature film just called Guadalupe. If we have time, we'll watch a few clips of it. I think it's, it's the best done movie so far on Guadalupe. Um, it's kind of a modern-day story, of, a fictitious story of a couple in Spain, and they're having marital problems, and they go to Mexico, uh, and then people tell them little by little about the science of the Guadalupe Tilma, and uh, a lady explains the story to them, and we do a beautiful flashback where we see Our Lady, a beautiful Madonna, speaking in the native tongue to Juan Diego, and we see the whole story uh, reenacted and played out. Then you watch the documentary, which we have over there. I think the Knights of Columbus helped put that together. It's fantastic. I think it's called The Message and the Mystery of Guadalupe or something. And what's really, my favorite part of that documentary is how indigenous peoples all over the world have been discovering her, especially here in Canada. Like, it wasn't until, you know, not right off the bat, but through the ages, she became the Empress of the Americas and Our Lady of all the Americas, not just Mexico, not just South America. So to he- it's so moving to hear these people say, she came as a native, she came as one of us, and she's- she spoke our language, and she understood our customs, and she spoke through our customs and our symbols. It's like, yes, she did. So beautiful. This is one of the richest Marian apparitions ever. There's so much to it. We're just going to scratch the surface. So that's how you would watch Our Lady in movies. And of course, today we want to connect Our Lady with the theology of the body. OLG always makes me think of the lottery. (laughs) Right? Every time I see that. And when I see the lottery, I think of Our Lady of Guadalupe. So how how does she in particular connect? Well, certainly the pro-life movement. But Jesus and Mary are the theology. What is the theology of the body? Jesus and Mary are the theology of the body. Our Lady of Guadalupe teaches us theology of the body. Mary herself is a catechism. She always has been. She is so linked to all the doctrines and dogmas about Jesus. She's called the vanquisher of heresies. Have you heard that title? Just by being who she is, the truth about Mary vanquishes heresies. It it tells us the truth about God and the truth about ourselves and humanity. She's also called the exterminatrix of heresies. Anybody heard? I love that one. Do you ever see those like medieval um, illuminations where she's punching the devil? <laughs> they have these Hail Mary full of grace, punch the devil in the face. Yeah, anyway. yeah. they actually have these little medieval you know, paintings of her like really wailing on the devil. Okay. This is a very earthy apparition. And the fact that she left a relic behind, she hasn't really done that in any other apparition where she left a part of herself, a miraculous image, a miraculous relic behind. So it's very sensory. It's about earth and heaven and the marriage of earth and heaven, uniting earth and heaven. And let's remember that tangible things are not just for the weak in faith. 
there for all of us because we are soul and body. We can't say, oh, I don't need any of those physical reminders or physical proofs because I'm very spiritual. It's like, no, you're not spiritual. You're, you're spiritual and physical because you're a human being. And that's why we have the sacraments, which are matter and spirit together. So it's very much about creation also because of the natives. They were, they were very invested in the earth, and the earth was, they saw it as a gift of God, and it meant a lot to them, and the symbols of the earth, uh, the flowers, the, they were all artists, the artisans. Even today, Mexicans are amazing at what they produce with their hands, beautiful handiwork. So creation is called the first book of Revelation. And this is what John Paul II's genius was, is he turned us back to the first book of Revelation, and I don't mean the book of Revelation as in the last book of the Bible, but how we can know God through creation. And that's what John Paul II, in his Theology of the Body, turned us back to this first book of Revelation, the created material universe that is not going away because there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. Yeah. Okay. So we'll, we'll just see how far we get telling this amazing story. So as we said, December 9 was the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. And Juan Diego is interesting because usually Our Lady appears to whom? Little kids, right? Children, teenagers maybe. But this man was in his 50s, Juan Diego. He was a Christian. He was, um, he was not an Aztec. He was one of the tribes, Indian tribes. And he was caring for his uncle, as we know, who was dying, who was very, very sick. And he lived for 16 years, Juan Diego lived for 16 years after the apparition. He was actually on his way to a Saturday morning mass of Our Lady uh, when Our Lady first appeared to him. He would walk uh, 14 miles to one way, I guess, to the, uh, the church on Saturdays for the Marian Mass. And he first heard heavenly music, and then he heard her voice. And it's so beautiful. Uh, if you read the dialogues between Mary and Juan Diego, they have a way of speaking. Um, uh, little, my little mother, oh, my little tiny son, <laughs> you are the littlest of all my children. And this was not an insult. This was, they had a sense of humility and, and modesty. It was like, oh, you are my mother and my daughter and my, my, my sweet friend. Like they, they would have all these different metaphors and relationships that they would express. So she said to him, Juanito, listen, my dearest and youngest son, where are you going? He said, my lady, my queen, my dearest girl, I am going as far as your little house in Teletilo. Sorry, I can't say these names. Teltelico, to follow the things of God. Now, again, the way they express themselves, instead of just to say pray, I go to pray or worship, there's a very specific way. I have um, from the Canadian Bible Society, the Gospel of Luke translated into English in a way that First Nations people would understand. So the names like for Jesus, it's, it's something like this. He said, I am going to your little house to follow the things of God 
everything that makes God be God. Interesting, right? So they have like these doctrines right in their speech. Um, Taught to us by the ones who are the images of our Lord, our priests. That sophisticated theology of the body right there. That priests are icons of Jesus Christ. They enter into the sacrament. Father Raymond has entered into the sacrament of the priesthood as an icon of Christ. That's why, that's part of the reason men, um, males, priests have to be males. They are icons of Jesus Christ himself. So this was Tepeyac Hill, a few miles outside Mexico City, and it used to be the former temple site of the snake mother goddess, devourer of children. This is where Our Lady appeared. So she, Our Lady's always turning death into life, amen? Turning our cultures of death into cultures of life. And she said to him, Know for sure, my dearest and lowliest son, that I am the perfect, ever-virgin, holy mother of the one great God of truth who gives us life, the inventor and creator of people, the owner and Lord of what is around us and what is touching us or very close to us, the owner and Lord of the sky, the owner of the earth. I love these titles. I want very much, I desire very much that they build my sacred little house here I will exalt God in making him manifest. I will give him to the people in my compassionate gaze, in my help, in my salvation, because I am truly your compassionate mother. So, again, many, many titles. Uh, The Aztecs have this way of, they say the same thing over and over again in different ways. So then she tells him to go to the Bishop of Mexico, the first uh, Archbishop of Mexico City, and request this of him. And of course, that was not easy because he was um, just a simple man going to see the bishop and getting the bishop to believe him. But I don't know. I always assumed the bishop was some sort of aristocratic, bureaucratic dude, (laughs) you know, high and lofty, snobby. He was not. This, This was a very holy man. He was a Franciscan. And... He was very austere. He got up and he did all his penances and he said all the different hours of the Liturgy of the Hours every day. And he loved the Indians. He was named Defender of the Indians. And he was sent to Mexico to defend the Indians from the conquistadors that were just so brutal and cruel to them. So he was on their side. And he had been praying to Our Lady for a solution to the problem of of how can we stop these evil conquistadors from hurting these people and, you know, raping the women and slaughtering the men and stealing their properties and all the horrible things they were doing. And there was no way to kind of stop them because the the military might of Spain was far, far away. And it was just the conquistadors and the missionaries. And that was it. You know? So, so this is so significant that he was praying to Our Lady for a solution for peace between the peoples, the white people and the indigenous peoples. So it's just so beautiful if you um, get to to read all the the long dialogues that Our Lady and Juan Diego had. And I just love the fact that he was more interested in caring for his uncle than in having apparitions. So he completely forgot that she told him to meet him the next day, go to the bishop, and then report back to her. So he, he went to go take care of his uncle, 
And his uncle said, get me a priest because I'm dying. So he was going back to the little you know, church 14 miles away to get a priest to do the last rites. And then he realized, uh-oh, Our Lady. I forgot about <laughs> going to see Our Lady. And so she cuts him off at the overpass. So he avoids her. He avoids that side of the hill. And she appears on the other side. And she says to him, where are you going? And he, he's like, oh, busted, right? So he says to her, this is so sweet. And people say, you know, you can't make this up. People who know literature and like, this is not fake. He said to her, oh, good morning. How are you? Are, did you sleep well? <laughs> um, so, and she, she doesn't scold him. She just tells him, you know, don't worry. Am, am I not here who are your mother? Don't worry about your uncle. He is cured. I have already cured him. He's well. So just carry out my commands. Don't worry about anything. Um, I'm here to help you. So she tells him to go and cut a variety of flowers, not just roses, that he will find on the hill. Now, this is the middle of winter. This is de uh, desert, which gets very cold at night. And they said it was, it was probably maybe frost on the ground. There was no flowers. And not only are there a variety of flowers blooming that he cuts, puts in his cloak or tilma to bring to her. She said, come cut the flowers and bring them to me. But there's also Castilian roses, which have not been introduced into the new world yet from Spain, Castilian roses. And I read somewhere else that the bishop loved these Castilian roses. He was just nuts about them. And another thing that I read says that Our Lady said to him, go and bring him the sign that he's asking for. So my question is, did he just ask for any sign or did he ask for Castilian roses, <laughs> you know? Um, maybe he did. Maybe he said, hey. Because um, he also wanted a sign, um, not just to, for, to, for peace between the people, but he wanted a sign to know if Our Lady was really appearing to this man or, or something. He needed proof that she was appearing. And she arranges them herself in his cloak. She, she arranges the way she wants the flowers to be. Another little detail, they said, you don't make those things up. And that's exactly what a lady would do, right? A woman would do. <laughs> the way she wants them, right? Arrange the flowers. So he went back to the bishop's residence and opened his cloak. The bishop's name is Bishop Zumaraga. It's really interesting because everybody in this plot is named Juan. There's about four or five Juans. He was also Juan. Um, Juan Diego's uncle was Juan. There's just a whole bunch of Juans there. So not only did these amazing flowers tumble out, and of course the bishop recognized the Castilian roses immediately, but she appeared on the image at that moment. So she wasn't already there, and when the roses fell down, it revealed this image. The roses fell, and she appeared. The image appeared at that moment. So he fell on his knees, as did the people with him, weeping to see this beautiful image and have their prayers answered. So just to bring it up to date, an average of about 15 thousand people a day come to the basilica there are four moving sidewalks that bring you past the image which is up high now but it's the original image about 450 years old now 
A new basilica was built in 1976. You've probably seen pictures of it. And the mass is just offered all day long. So on the site of Mexico City, where there used to be human sacrifice all day long, they got up to the point where they were sacrificing like 25,000 people a year. Um, because the, the reason they did that was they thought the sun was going to die. Their whole culture was built around the sun rising and, um, and dying every day, and then the winter solstice, and they had cycles of 52 years. So Our Lady actually appeared on the winter solstice. So, so it's, it's believed that, and you say, well, isn't the winter solstice December 21 or 22? Yes, but they were using the Julian calendar, so they were about 10 or 11 days off because the Julian calendar had this defect in it where you'd, you know, you'd get a, your time would eventually get off, and it was off by about 10 or 11 days. So they really believe that she appeared on the tilma at about 10.45 a.m. Um, at, at the like, exact moment of the winter solstice to say, um, you do not need... Anyway, the whole symbolism of the, the uh, tilma was you do not need to do this human sacrifice anymore because my son is the true sacrifice. And the fact that this here is the sun, the rays of the sun. So not only is she clothed with the sun, she is greater than the sun. She's standing in front of it. She's blocking it. And she's pregnant too. This is a pregnant Madonna. They read that into, into it with that little um, sash she's wearing. Um, so her son, she and her son are greater than the son. And he is the true sacrifice. He is the true God. And he sacrificed his life for you so you don't have to kill other people. And, and we'll say more about that. So the tilma, or um, cloak of Juan Diego, is made out of a cactus called magui. I don't know how to say it. M-A-G-U-E-Y which was very um, used, commonly used, it's still used today for many things in Mexico, but it was very cheap material. So it disintegrated um, very easily. And she chose this very poor material to, to preserve her image on. It's a miracle. Just the fact that that material is still around after 450 years is a miracle. And her image is still bright and shining on that image. It's still a miracle. Because what they, they've done tests where they, of course, this is not paint. This is a divine image from the divine artist. They do not know what it's made out of. Like they cannot, it's not plant, mineral, or vegetable, or animal goods. They've, they've looked now. Now, the, every day we, we advance in science, right? So we can do these more and more scientific experiments on things like miraculous items like the, um, the tilma. And they can't explain it. They don't know how the image got there, what nature this image is of, made of. And they've done experiments where they put other tilmas up in the cathedral, even in the old basilica they did it. And within seven years, they had completely disintegrated. They, they only last about seven years. Because also they're near the um, Lake Texcoco, which gives off nitrous fumes, and there's candles and smoke, and 
inside the basilica and heat, uh, dust, they, they, it just doesn't last. Now Mary herself is about four feet nine inches on the original image. Um, so, she, so it's not super tiny, but it, it's an optical illusion where the farther away you are, the larger it appears. And as you get up close, it appears even smaller. So there's a lot of optical illusions with Our Lady. One of them also is that if you're really close up to her, she looks more white, her skin. If you get a little bit farther back, she's more olive. And the further back you get, she becomes more dark. And the point was, she's mestiza. She came to say, I am both a Spaniard and an indigenous person, even though she favors the indigenous look. But there is definitely an element of I am mixed here. Pope John XXIII declared a Marian year dedicated to Our Lady of Guadalupe uh, from 1960 to 1961, and it was then that she was given the name Mother of the Americas. So many, many popes through the years have had devotion to her and done special things, acknowledged her in a special way. It was Leo XIII who had her a papal coronation. He ordered a papal coronation of the image. Pope Paul VI sent a golden rose to her. And they have a museum where all of this stuff is kept. John Paul II first went to Poland when he became pope in 79. Oh, sorry, 78. Um, his first trip was to Poland. Then in 79, he went to Mexico. That was his second trip. Um, and he included in that trip the Bahamas and the Dominican Republic. Um, so he celebrated Mass at the New Basilica. And then he returned in May 1990, John Paul II, to beatify Juan Diego, who's now a saint as well. 18 million people showed up the first time John Paul II visited Mexico. Anybody remember that? I do. I do remember that. It was amazing. But I think the Philippines beat them World Youth Day. Like the entire islands just poured out. It was ridiculous. I don't know if you've seen those um, aerial photos. You cannot see the beginning or end of the people. It's, they couldn't even number them. It was ridiculous. Okay. Um, yes. <clears throat> So this is what Mary promised. She said, I wish and intensely desire that my sanctuary be erected here. Here I will demonstrate, I will exhibit, I will give all my love, my compassion, my help, and my protection to the people. I am your merciful mother, the merciful mother of all of you who live united in this land and of all mankind, of all those who love me. Here I will hear their weeping, their sorrow, and will remedy and alleviate their multiple sufferings, necessities, and misfortunes. So again, this is that, that native or Aztec way of expressing many thoughts and repeating many titles to get, to get the point across. So Mary asks, she promises and affirms. She will show, make a parent, and give. She will give my love to the people, my compassion, my help, my protection, which is what mothers do, right? 
This is, there was a book, we used to uh, print a book called That Motherly Mother of Guadalupe. <laughs> um, because she's just, this is probably her most maternal, again, apparition, where she just keeps saying, I'm, I'm the mother, I'm the mother. And Juan, like St. John, on Calvary represents all humanity. So whatever she's going to give to Juan, she's giving to everyone. And what must the people do? They must love her, they must cry out to her, they must seek her, and they must have confidence in her. And they're saying that the way Our Lady spoke was, in that original language, was just so incredibly poetic. It was like a masterful literary work as well as a masterful theological work. If you really break it down and look at it in the original language, it's, it's really... They said a genius did it, basically. Okay. Now, this is very fascinating about um, Spain itself. So Columbus just less than a century earlier, uh, went to the Queen of Spain, Queen Isabel and King Ferdinand. Now, both of them were Franciscan tertiaries. So the Franciscans had a lot to do with the evangelization of Mexico and the New World. And there was already an Our Lady of Guadalupe in Spain. Did you know that? Guadalupe is actually an Arabian and Arabic term meaning hidden river, because the, Span the, uh, the Muslims, the Moors, had invaded Spain in the 700s and um, basically ruled and had, they, they were a conquered people, the Spanish, the Catholic Spanish were a conquered people living in a Muslim-occupied land, and, but the Spanish already had their own Madonna, um, and they adopted that name, Guadalupe, an Arabic name meaning hidden river. And even to this day, it is the second most popular shrine in Spain. First is Our Lady of Pilar, and then there's Our Lady of Guadalupe. Isn't that fascinating? So when she said, I am Our Lady of Guadalupe, immediately that everybody, all the Spanish in Mexico were like, well, yeah, we know that shrine. We know her. However, she looks very different from the Madonna in Spain, which is one of those sort of regal royal she has her child, baby, her Jesus with her and her scepter and her crown and a big gown and everything. But they said in the choir loft of this church, there is a, another Madonna that does look like Our Lady of Guadalupe in Mexico. There's so many connections, so rich, like I said. And Columbus prayed to Our Lady of Guadalupe a lot, and he made promises to her if he would come back safely from exploring, he would do X, Y, and Z, and he really did all of that. And this Our Lady of Guadalupe in Spain is very ancient. And it's said to have been carved by St. Luke. So you know how there's uh, Our Lady of Chestahova as well, I believe, is, uh, goes back to Luke. There's some Madonnas in Rome that are supposedly also Luke did them himself. 
Now, Cortez, who was the main you know, conquistador who, who invaded, basically, uh, Mexico, was also a devout Catholic and very devoted to Our Lady of Guadalupe. So we hear today about the brutality, and, and it was bad. It was terrible, um, what the conquistadors did. But Cortez was not as bad as some of the others. Um, and again, bad is relative, right, as to his, the brutality, etc. I mean, they were prepared to conquer with force, with war and everything, these new lands, and they did. But we just don't understand that today, how a ruler would also be interested in evangelizing. So it really is true that even the ex- some of the explorers, some of the conquistadors, at least their leaders, uh, were very interested in making these people Christian and, and kind of winning them for God. But, of course, they did a horrible job because they're telling them, our God is a God of love and peace, and they're killing them, <laughs> you know, and abusing them. It's, like, ridiculous. So... So as you've probably heard, the Franciscan missionaries had a very hard time converting anyone because they said, well, this is how you live. This is how you people live. Okay, so you're Christians. This is what Christians do, like us today when we're bad examples, right? <laughs> Who wants to be a part of that? Um, so so there's a lot of stories of um, Cortez. Really, he loved Our Lady, and he was trying... Um, if he couldn't do it by invitation, he would try to kind of do it by force, get people to worship the true God and um, you know, in our, uh, have a place for Our Lady in their lives. The city of Mexico, as you know, was beautiful. It was a gorgeous city. Uh, when they came upon it, there was this shining. With, they had the temples and the pyramids. Some of that is still standing today. You can walk up the big pyramids. and um, Very advanced culture. They didn't have an alphabet or a written language, but they used codexes. So every, that's why she is a codex. She uh, has, which we'll talk about, uh, she has many, many, many symbols and pictures, actual pictures that mean, have just such deep meaning for the people. Uh, so they would keep records in forms of pictures and symbols to describe what happened, um, events, to express their religion, etc. It was all done in um, a kind of a picture language. There were 60,000 buildings in the city of Mexico City. They had surgeons. The Spanish found that their surgeons were as good as any surgeons in Europe. They had all kinds of medicines um, and herbs that they used. Their judicial system was very similar to a European judicial system. There was a lot of integrity to it. There was not a lot of corruption. Um, To take a bribe was punishable by death if somebody in the courts took a bribe. They believed in personal property and personal freedom. If you were of the right class, they had a slave class, but if you were uh, of the working class, that you were craftsman, merchant, you had a lot of freedom. Stealing was punishable by death. Adulterers were stoned. They had no locks on their doors, so you had to be really good. (laughs) And they didn't have a class system, really, except for the slaves. So you could associate freely with, you could talk to the intellectuals, 
uh, the intellectuals could mingle in the marketplace with the merchants. And of course, they used the stars for everything. So that they were very developed. Their astronomy was very developed, and that would tell you when to plant, um, when to do your religious feasts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Gold was used for ornamentation, not for trade. For, so they couldn't understand why the Spaniards were obsessed with gold as money, because they didn't use it for that. They just used it for beauty. Now, people think that Juan Diego was a simple little peasant, and he wasn't. He was actually of the merchant class, and he was getting more wealthy all the time. He, was, um, he made mats and furniture from... Um, from reeds and plants from the river, and had quite a booming little business. He had several properties. He was married. It doesn't sound like he had any children, but he was married. Um, very happy, very well off, and um, educated. Uh, yeah, so this idea that he was some simple uh, peasant, he really wasn't. But he chose to live an austere life, an ascetical life, because he was one of the early Christian converts, him and his family, and thus he took the name Juan, a Christian name. So it's interesting to really get to know Juan Diego himself. Now this thing with the human sacrifice was imposed by the Aztec rulers. So their god of war, Huitzilpochtli, um, demanded uh, human sacrifice. So they mostly sacrificed their prisoners from their wars. However, the indigenous peoples prior to the Aztecs taking over, so the Aztecs had been there for, I'm going to say like 400 years when Our Lady appeared, had moved into the region and taken over, and everybody was kind of subject to them living in an Aztec culture. But there was another god, hero god, um, it's unclear to me whether he was an, an actual real person that they turned into a god named Quetzalcoatl, and um, also known as the Feathered Serpent. But you have to understand that in certain cultures, serpents aren't bad. You know, they aren't seen as a bad, evil, dark figure, which it doesn't seem was the case here. Um, so, for example, in Christian iconography, the moon is not seen as something dark and evil, a dark and evil force where it is in pagan cultures. Does that make sense? So sometimes colors can have exact opposite meanings. White can be mourning in one culture. It can be celebration in another. So actually, this feathered serpent was a good guy. <laughs> okay. the, the prior god who did not believe in human sacrifice, he sacrificed himself. And he taught the people civilization. He taught the people uh, virtue. So there was almost a conflict there, but these, everyone had to go along with this human sacrifice stuff from the Aztecs. Now, there was a prophecy that Quetzalcoatl, who had to leave Mexico, would come back again in the year 1519 and get rid of the Aztecs, and he would rule again. So there were many prophecies about the Aztecs losing their kingdom. The Mayans had a prophecy, and the Mayans were not Aztecs, but they were related. 
they had a prediction that these conquerors with hair like the sun, because some of them were blonde <laughs> from Spain, these conquerors would come and kick the Aztecs out and put smiles on the faces of the Indians again. So, yeah, there was a whole bunch of prophecies. So, and it all was going to happen around the time that the conquistadors came and Our Lady appeared. So that's why they say Montezuma, who was ruling, he was the Aztec emperor at the time, when the conquistadors came, he was like, uh, you know, here it is, the fulfillment of the prophecy. And he, he didn't put up a really big fight to, uh, to get rid of them, and he could have. They had, they had warriors, and they were a fierce fighting people, but he saw it as fate, the fulfillment of prophecy. Now listen to this. The Aztecs had, besides their human, not their human sacrifice, they had practices resembling the Catholic faith. Now get this. They had infant baptism done shortly after birth. Marriages were officiated over by their priests and were very difficult, and divorce was very difficult to obtain, requiring long and expensive court action. <laughs> This is freaky because some of these stuff I've never heard detailed in other religions like this. Now get this. They had confession that you would confess to the priest, but you could only do it once. And they would wait till very late in life <laughs> to, to make their one good confession. And the priests were bound by like a seal of confession. The civil authorities could not um, convict them of anything that they had said in confession. Isn't that interesting? Or maybe if there was no seal, if they had confessed it, they could not take action against them, civil action. But, and they had to do penance, whatever the priests told them. Okay. Um, they were very religious people, though. They said they had so many ceremonies and feasts, it was a wonder they got any work done. <laughs> Juan Diego was kind of a lay apostle. He... Uh, actively was involved in catechizing and trying to convert his uh, fellow natives as well. At one point, Cortez had um, gone to... He, he had made friends with a lot of the Indians already, and they accepted him. And um, But he, he was going into the heart of the Aztec kingdom to overthrow Montezuma or give peace terms or whatever, and um, at a certain point he realized that he was being played, and they were pretending they were going along, but they were probably going to get massacred. So he decided to jump the gun, and he went around smashing all their idols in the places where they, they said you could see the human blood. It would just flow down the, the pyramids and the altars. It was just caked on there, all the human blood. And he would smash their icons, and he put Our Lady. They had some of their own little statues they had brought from Spain, and he would stick Our Lady there and try to force them to, to you know, convert. But that didn't work. So, because our, our and he had to take everything down, all his Madonnas, and um, because Our Lady was going to do it herself. Just another quick note about Cortez and company there. Um, there was another guy named Nuno de Guzman who was really way more brutal, and he used to kill the conquistadors and take their property too. He was this really evil dude, and he cut off all communication, so the bishop and Cortez couldn't tell the king of Spain what he was doing in Mexico, and he smeared Cortez and blamed everything on him. 
But in the end, it all got straightened out. De Guzman was called back to Spain, and um, the major brutality stopped, but it was still bad. I mean, there was still skirmishes and bloody wars going on because naturally, somebody invades your country, what are you going to do? Fight back, right? So, so Our Lady put an end to all of that when she came, as well as the human sacrifice, an end to the human sacrifice. Now, there's something called the Nikan Mopohua, which is the story of Guadalupe written in the Indian language by a highly educated man, a historian, who was very good friends with Juan Diego. So we're so blessed because we have this image and we have the words to go with it. The reason we know exactly what Our Lady said and everything that transpired is because of Don Antonio Valeriano, that's his Christian name, this Indian who was just one of the most educated men of his time, who wrote a whole account. And he would spend long hours with Juan Diego, who, by the way, after uh, the bishop approved this and built the first chapel and all of that, Juan Diego lived at the chapel. He had a little house off to the side of the chapel, and he was the caretaker for many years until his death in his 70s of the image. And he would tell the story over and over, and it was all recorded. Fascinatingly, this book passed hands down through the ages, but it wound up at the New York Public Library. (laughs) It was bought in an auction in the 1880s. And so then the scholars had, uh, in America anyway, had access to it. So, for example, like the, the Our Lady of Knock, we just have the image, right? Um, that's, there was a silent image, imagery. But it's always so more powerful when we have the image and the words together. Supposedly, you know, the third secret of Fatima, which is an image, they haven't told us the words yet. The interpretation? Has anyone heard that one? No. Yeah, so, very interesting. Supposedly, John Paul II uh, said something, but it sounded more like his own interpretation of the image. It's not what Our Lady said about the image. Anyway, that's all conjecture. Um, Okay, so here's the thing. The image of Our Lady for 116 years, when she was first put up in the little chapel, the first chapel, people touched it. There was no glass, there was no protection. People put their fingers on it and, you know, put their rosaries to it. And and it, it should be a mess. It should just be a disaster, and it's not. So that's part of the miracle. They also cut it. Can you imagine cutting the original tilma? They cut the borders off to make it fit into a, into a frame at one point. So this thing was manhandled, all right? Um, and there's a whole controversy, too, about what, what image parts were added to it. So we do know that some gold leafing and silver leafing were added to it, which is now flaking off. Like they put silver on the moon, they put some extra gold on her. The the biggest controversy, I think, is about the crown. So originally, you see in some of the earliest, earliest images, there's a crown here. But there is no more, no longer. 
they, they really believe, and there's proof for this, because there are images that were made, reproductions that were made by artists and whatnot in the 1500s that are still extant. Um, and they tell us what the original image looked like. So some people will tell, I heard this all my life, that the angel was added later. It wasn't, it's part of the original image. But sometimes they actually, or at least in the beginning, they painted over stuff. They wanted to fix it and touch it up. So they think that most of the add-ons were done early, early on in the 1500s. And so a lot of that stuff is flaking off or is not in as good shape. But the angel is definitely part of the original image. And there have been a lot of scientific experiments done on the, the um, I keep, want, keep wanting to call it the shroud, the tilma from the beginning, they had the finest artists of the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s examining it for its artistic detail and what it was made of. And again, they couldn't explain many things about it. And then they did infrared examinations. Um, they've had ophthalmologists. We're going to talk about the eyes, what we can see in her eyes. They've had ophthalmologists, um, all kinds of different scientists uh, examining it for different reasons. It's kind of believed that it's almost like photographic film, almost like a Polaroid land camera that develops in the light, if that makes any sense. <laughs> um, the, the back of the tilma is very rough, and the front is very, very smooth. Where the image is, is extremely smooth, almost like an emulsion or something. And... Through the ages, uh, different things, tragedies happened. They spilt nitrous acid on it or something. <laughs> These workmen, yeah, nitric acid was spilled on it, and the workmen fled for fear of their lives. They thought they had destroyed the image. <laughs> they were trying to fix the frame or polish up the frame, and it didn't hurt her at all. Um, a bomb went off in the 1920s. They had planted a dynamite, sticks of dynamite, in the flowers right under her image, and nothing happened to her. Not even the glass was shattered. But a brass crucifix, big brass crucifix, like bent way over and like melted. It's still there. You can see the melted, bent over, destroyed crucifix, but not Our Lady. And this is another little note. Back in the, I want to say 1980s or 90s or so, there was a gentleman in Mexico who was seeing Our Lady, supposedly having apparitions of Our Lady of Guadalupe for the pro-life movement. And she, the original image, wanted, she wanted to go around. You know how at abortion clinics they, they'll sometimes bring the image of Our Lady um, and pray? And so many women, especially if you're Latina, you, you see that, you're like, no, I'm not going to do this. What am I doing? So many women who have seen the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe outside an abortion clinic change their mind. So anyway, this supposedly came from her, um, where she wanted her uh, the image to get taken off the wall in the basilica and go around, and she was going to end human sacrifice again. That's her whole thing. She's going to end human sacrifice again. We have a culture of human sacrifice right now, a culture of death, just like the Aztecs. 
except they didn't focus on children, they focused on adults. Um, I, I don't, children were fair game too, but we have a really scary culture of death which focuses on children. And Molech, as we know in the Bible, is the God that you sacrifice your children to. And really bad stuff happened to those cultures <laughs> that sacrificed their children to Molech. So, so but the, the bishops of Mexico would not let her come down off the wall. And you know what she told this gentleman, this seer? She said, okay, you can, you can use reproductions, but nothing would have happened to me. St. Joseph would have protected me. So, I love that. Um, all right, now this is another freaky, freaky thing. We're not going to get to all the freaky things, but no matter, no matter what the temperature is around her, her, the temperature of the tilma stays the same at 36.5 degrees Celsius or 98.6 degrees normal human body temperature. There's something like alive about this image. A Japanese ophthalmologist who was examining her eye fainted on the platform because he said he was looking into an actual human eye that was looking back at him. And her eye behaves when they put their, their lights on it. It dilates. <laughs> it behaves like a human eye. And it's a painting or whatever the heck it is. It's just a flat something or other, and it turns 3D when they're examining it. Um, so now, here's real quick. You hear that um, she's dressed like an Aztec princess? with all that symbolism, but there is definitely symbolism, Aztec symbolism and Indian symbolism, but other people say no, that is not, if you look at the, we know what the women wore, there's abundant artwork and paintings of, from the Spaniards and from the Indians themselves, and they did not wear that at all, this is not at all what they wore, this is Middle Eastern dress, so a lot of people believe this is what Mary of Nazareth looked like in Nazareth, with her mantle and her tunic and all of that. So, now, th this is a better view of, uh, just back up here. So when you look at it, she looks like an icon, doesn't she? I remember looking at going, she looks like an icon, an Eastern icon, flat, you know, kind of unnatural, the way the head is turned. Um, and this was shown to a Byzantine, a Russian Orthodox uh, priest at one point who did not know what he was looking at. He did not know Our Lady of Guadalupe. And he said, oh yes, this is um, an Eastern Byzantine, um, Eastern Asiatic icon. And he started explaining how, how it followed all the rules of icon making except her face looked too warm and natural. And then they explained to him, no, actually, this is not an icon. <laughs> um, so she's, she's just very multifaceted, um, and she appeals to, to so many different cultures. Her, her imagery, the colors and everything, can be interpreted according to Western iconography, Western Christian symbols and art, 
It can be interpreted according to Aztec symbols and art, and even Eastern Byzantine, Russian, etc. iconography. Isn't that interesting? She she makes it across the board. So she is clothed with the rays of the sun, standing on the moon, with stars adorning her mantle. Hence, these elements need no longer be feared nor worshipped. So a symbol or a sacramental can't produce grace, but it can be a channel of grace. Amen? Amen. Especially if it's from heaven itself and miraculous. You know, I just have to tell you this. Hillary Clinton was on the moving sidewalk she, when she, uh, her husband was president, and she was visiting Mexico, and she said, oh, that's beautiful. Who painted it? <laughs> and, and the bishop looked at her, and he said, God? <laughs> um, it's, it's funny, because some of the literature I read, it says God is the artist. Others say she is the artist. Um, and did you, this is fascinating, um, Eastern iconography has retained, for what, close to 2,000 years probably, the earliest understanding of Christian symbols. In the West, we play fast and loose with everything, right? Including symbols. But if you want to really understand Christian symbols and Christian iconography, you have to look to the East. And did you know they even put an imprimatur on some of their images and icons to say that this image is free from heresy? The symbols are free from heresy? Wow. Wish we'd do that with some of our bad art, huh? Our bad (laughs) Western Christian art. (laughs) Okay. Um, So so I, I was just thinking last night, Oh my gosh, so, so the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation 12.12 says, a great sign appeared in the sky, a, a woman, right? Um, and then I thought, wait a minute, but wait, a great sign appeared in the sky, but when did that happen? It hasn't happened. Some people say um, it's, it's the constellations, you know, Virgo, and which is, this is not astrology, but astronomy, right? So you could say that maybe some... Um, heavenly celestial event already happened where Virgo was there and etc etc but I'm saying maybe it meant this maybe it meant Guadalupe (laughs) or maybe we can certainly take it as that because we know not everything in the Bible has been fulfilled yet Amen? amen there are prophecies still to be fulfilled so I thought oh my gosh what if what if Guadalupe is the fulfillment of Revelation 12 12 So she is appearing as the Immaculate Conception on December 9, Old Feast of the Immaculate Conception. And it wasn't a dogma yet, right? And actually it was a controversy. The Franciscans believed in it. The Dominicans did it. You know? Um, And the Franciscans were victorious because in 18... I'm going to say 54, around then, it was proclaimed as a dogma. And, uh, and then, of course, Our Lady appeared to Bernadette. Here we are at St. Bernadette's. And she said, I am the Immaculate Conception. Like, confirming. You, you got it right. <laughs> okay. I, I'm just skipping so much stuff because there's so much. 
So the, this is called the aureole around here, which is very rarely shown on anything except God, a, fi a God figure. Uh, but of course, God is right here, right? God is present. Um, and, and then there's all kinds of, I'm not going to go through the entire reading of every detail according to Western understanding of art and iconography. Um, <clears throat> but it also meant that she was the queen of heaven. And the colors also have a lot to say, too. Now, here's something really beautiful, too, about icons. Did you know that in the Eastern Rite, they have a ritual for the blessing of icons? And this is what the priest says. O oh Lord our God, send down the grace of the Holy Spirit upon this icon. Bless it and make it holy. Grant it the power and strength of miraculous deeds. What? They want all their icons to be miraculous. Make it a spring of recovery and health. Wow, like it's a sacramental, but they're actually, the priest is blessing this thing, asking the Holy Spirit to come upon it. Wow. And that's why... You know, the, the Eastern Christians died for their icons. They died for them. They were martyrs for Christian art. So Our Lady um, wants to look, wanted to look very human. They say if you get up close to her, those who can go on the platform and get up close to her, she, they said you, you, it just doesn't do it justice to see her from a distance or any reproduction. Her face is beautiful and just she's smiling and she's warm um, and it was funny because they said the reproductions and from a distance she looks her mouth looks pouty that's exactly what I was thinking she, she looks like she's pouting and her eyes are bulging and they said that's not how she looks up close now she also has the, the, the sky from December from the winter solstice, December 12th is the date that the till, she appeared on the till night, December 12th, 19, oh, sorry, 1531. So the constellations are here of the, of the sky from that date. So it is a snapshot of the sky at that time, which um, Leo is rising, the constellation of Leo, which is the king, is rising, um, and there's Vir Virgo, there is the Corona Borealis over her temples. Like, if, if this had extended up, if her tunic had extended up, the crown would be here. Leo is in her womb, the king is in her womb. Um, just unbelievable symbolism. And Regulus, which is some prominent star there, um, it's the most prominent star in the constellation of Leo means little king. How cool is that? Okay. And like I said, there's, there's just so much. It's just so rich, the symbolism. You could go on and on. There's the most detailed stuff I've read. And I love also that God is very patient for us to discover this. Um, and that 
I really believe that he, um, he knows that in our day and age, faith is very weak, so we have science to help us, right? Things that science can discover, which just backs God up. Science is on God's side, right? Just backs everything up God ever said or did. Okay. Now, I want to jump to something Christopher West says about Our Lady of Guadalupe. He, uh, he loves Our Lady of Guadalupe. He's always talking about her. I think it's probably his favorite Marian devotion. And this is what Christopher says. Um, there's, there's, I'll just point out a few more things. She's praying, but she also has a hidden like maraca in her hand, which they used to make out of rattlesnake tail rattles. And her knee is bent because she's dancing because this is one of the cultures like Africans that dance to worship, right? So she is dancing um, on the moon. Christopher has an amazing CD from Lighthouse called The Secret of Mary, When Heaven and Earth Kiss. So just another quick symbol. They saw the angel representing Juan Diego. And anything that touches something else is kissing it. So Our Lady is kissing Juan Diego here, and in him all of humanity. So teal, the blue represents earth, and the rose represents heaven. Sorry, the teal represents heaven, and the pink represents the earth. And there's a flower on her tunic over her womb that means, the, the symbolism of the flower, it's, it's, it's so rich, I mean, there's so many layers, it would take like half an hour to explain it to you. <laughs> this particular flower over her womb means that heaven is inseminating earth, that she is pregnant with the divine. It, it's just unbelievable. So, What we can glean from this in a theology of the body way is that our bodies are theological. Every woman's body, and a man's body too, are theological in two different ways. We express the mystery of creation, the mystery of God in two different ways. Satan hates our bodies, especially the womb, life, and fertility. Because what, what happens in Revelation 12.12? 12? The lady appears, and then what happens? She's giving birth. And what does the serpent, the dragon, want to do? Devour her child. So Satan wants to devour our children, us, families, marriage, etc. Just like that that, um, mother, snake goddess mother that devoured children, right? She's the anti-snake mother. (laughs) She steps on the snake. Okay. Um, so as Christopher always says when our desire for God is misdirected when we stop believing in God we worship the next best thing which is sex now the Aztecs the two main things they like to do their art about was sex and death 
So what is sex? Sex is the union of the male and the female, the masculine and the feminine. But without God, we're unable to understand it. So we cut it off from life. And sex now equals death. We worship the icon and turn it into an idol, the image of God that we are, and it no longer leads to physical or spiritual life, but to physical and spiritual death. And so in our day and age, I really believe Mary is, is, these are her days. How many people really feel like these are Mary's times? Even the crisis in the church, I believe she is actively working on this, right? It's now 101 years after Fatima. We were all waiting for something to happen last year, right? But <laughs> maybe, you know, her timing isn't exact. Um, in Mary, all human longing is fulfilled. Why? Because God, God is within her. And by saying yes to God, we fulfill ourselves. You want to be fulfilled? There is no self-realization or self-actualization without God. Try it. Try it. It don't work. <laughs> right? Just, just do what she did. Okay. So, all right. I think I need to stop because we need to stop. Um, here's another quote from Christopher. Our healing and hope is the meeting of heaven and earth in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Our healing and hope is the meeting of heaven and earth in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, just, just so you know, so don't say, well, Sister Helena never told us that part. Her eyeball, like I said, is like a real human eyeball. And when we look at something, it's reproduced three times in our eyeball. On the cornea and the hoochie-boochie and then upside down. It's actually upside down on the cornea. And she's got all of that. So what has been captured in her her eye is the moment of when the flowers fell, her image appeared, and the bishop is kneeling before her. There's a whole bunch of people there. There's some native women and children, and um, you can see all those people in her eyeball. Okay. What else? And she continues to do so many miracles today. Oh, we didn't talk about the Battle of Lepanto. Shoot. Okay. We're going to just maybe five more minutes. Yes? Okay. Now, y'all know about the Battle of Lepanto, right? Okay, so, refresher. What happened was St. Pius V became Pope in 1566. And boy, it's almost like Europe today, right? There was uh, Muslims were, I mean, now it's the migration, but they had been driven out of Spain at this point. Uh, 1566, but the Turkish Ottoman Empire was very, very powerful. They had a powerful navy, and they were moving up the coast, and they were going to, they really wanted to conquer all of Europe. They had the Albigensians, um, heresy was raging. Um, the Reformation had just happened, and Catholics were all leaving the church and becoming Protestant, um, and there was religious wars, and wow, times were tough. So what Pius V did was he convinced the Spanish and the Italians to stop fighting each other 
and to settle their trade differences and join together as the Holy League. Isn't there a League of Gentlemen? Some like Marvel comic. Anyway. Okay, this is the Holy League. Um, to, to fight back, to fight off the, the naval Turkish um, advance. But do you know there's a connection with Our Lady of Guadalupe, with the Battle of Lepanto? So the, arch, the second archbishop of Mexico City said, Our Lady will help you. This is only like 30 years later after the apparition. He had an image made of Our Lady of Guadalupe, and they put it in the cabin of one of the ships, the Christian ships. And um, so anyway, the battle started, and interestingly enough, the, uh, the, the Muslim ships formed a crescent, and they were slaughtering, and then they advanced, and they were slaughtering the Christians. It looked like a total disaster for the Christians. And they're not sure exactly what happened, but the crew and everyone said it was our, the intervention of Our Lady of Guadalupe. They believed that the captain of the ship ran in, he was Italian, that particular ship. There was, the whole thing was under the command of some Austrian dude, Don Juan of Austria. But, so it was a concerted effort of, of a lot of different European countries, Catholic countries. Um, but this particular ship that was really under attack, the Andrea Doria, um, they believe the captain ran into his, his uh, quarters and knelt before Our Lady and begged her intercession. All of a sudden, this wind s- comes out of nowhere, this massive driving wind, and pushes back the Muslim ships, puts them into panic and confusion, and they were destroyed. And that was the final breaking of the naval power of the Ottoman Empire. And they never again attempted anything like that. But Pius V, they said he didn't really know about this Guadalupe thing going on. All he knew was he asked for a rosary crusade. And he had everybody praying the rosary, which I'm sure it's, it's either way it's Our Lady, right? <laughs> um, and so this, this broke. Otherwise, Europe would be Muslim today. Um, so... Anyway, the, the, this original image, you can go see it. It's in Italy. It's a little north of Genoa. Um, they took the, the, the beautiful image out and they enshrined it there. And the people of this town are like so devoted to Our Lady of Guadalupe, it's not funny. So they had to have, they have their own like mass of Our Lady of Guadalupe there and stuff. Okay. So it was first October 7, when we celebrate the Feast of Our Lady of the Rosary, it was originally called Our Lady of Victory. But shortly it was changed to Our Lady of the Rosary. All right. So now we are going to wrap up here. Um, I lived in Southern California for five years, and wow, Our Lady Guadalupe is everywhere. She's on like, you can't go like a mile without having seen like 10,000 images of Our Lady, like painted on billboards, on, there might be a little shrine, she's, and wherever they put her image, no graffiti. No graffiti. Actually, the city of Los Angeles was considering commissioning Our Lady of Guadalupe to be painted in certain like graffiti areas. So that they'd stop with the graffiti. 
They didn't actually do it, but it was, it was seriously being considered. Now, there's this beautiful thing where one of the popes, I think it was Pope Benedict XV, who, when he, just, when he visited Guadalupe or he heard about it or whatever, I doubt he visited the shrine, but he said, he quoted something from the Bible about the Jews. He said, he, meaning God, he has not dealt thus with other nations. And so that's now at the shrine, the new shrine, the new basilica. There's the big words from the scriptures. He has not dealt thus with other nations. And, and the Bible goes on to say, he has not taught them his decrees. He has not, you know, like he favored the Jews, his chosen people. So it's such a unique thing. And of course, Our Lady converted everybody. So Our Lady single-handedly, when they were able to understand that she came as one of them, she explained to them the true God, the true religion. Um, and there's a lot more to that, too, because they had a prophecy prophecy from one of their own leaders and very intellectual men who stopped worshiping their pagan gods, and he said, no, there's one true God, but I don't know him yet. And, and he tried to worship him the best he could, but he said, someday... Somebody is going to come to our land and teach us about the true God, the one true God. So, um, so Our Lady, as you know, single-handedly converted the Mexican nation. Um, Eight million people converted within several years after she appeared. They were doing so many marriages and baptisms, like kind of like Francis Xavier, his arm was ready to fall off. The priests and down there, like, wow. And we need to pray for Mexico now, don't we? Um, they are reverting back to an, an Aztec kind of uh, culture of death as well. Um, they, have, they, they worship Santa Muerte. Have you heard of that? So they have this uh, skull-like goddess thingy, but it's, it's demonic. You know, they call her Saint Death, Holy Death. But they worship her, and the drug cartels worship her, and... Um, you know, do horrible things in her name. It's a ghastly-looking figure. Um, another little incident here, uh, incidentally, too. Uh, well, I won't go there. Uh, but and they're killing. You know, the killings are horrible. These these drug cartels are just the most vicious, violent things. They kill mayors, police chiefs, nuns, priests. Nobody is off limits. Um, they'll young people were protesting in the streets against them, and they killed fifty of them. Like. You know, bodies wind up in these trucks, you know, 75 bodies stacked up in a truck. People disappear. It's just, it's so sad. So we really need to pray to Our Lady of Guadalupe for, again, all the Americas, um, especially um, for it to become a culture of life again. So I call her our indigenous Winter solstice, queen virgin mother, clothed with the sun, dancing on the moon. <laughs> so thank you so much. Um, this has been a wonderful opportunity for me to um, increase my knowledge of Our Lady, and I'm going to continue uh, with this amazing devotion. So she wants to do it. She wants to help us, and she will. Thank you. God bless. <laughs>